Hello, and welcome to another armed and dangerous episode of No Franchise Fatigue, the podcast that loves cinematic franchises no matter how many sequels, prequels, remakes, reboots, reimaginings, or remakels there are. I am your host, Matt Reifschneider, and I am joined by my slightly unhinged co-host and newly transferred partner, Sean Kaler. How are you doing today, sir? It's just been revoked. <laughs> Wait, our podcast has been revoked? What's What's been revoked? Our podcast's diplomatic immunity. Uh, it does have diplomatic immunity. <laughs> I am actually a firm believer in that. Um, you can't you can't mess with us. We can do whatever we want on this podcast. Matt, yeah, exactly. Matt is straight-laced and slightly older. I'm just a tiny bit younger and apparently a Vietnam super soldier. <laughs> apparently. <laughs> apparently. Surprise, surprise. A thread a thread that will be dropped spontaneously a quarter into this podcast and never touched again. Again, yes. Even though it's like the crux of the of title. The first... <laughs> <laughs> it, it literally is the reason this franchise exists. Mm. And what franchise? are we talking about well that would of course be richard donner's lethal weapon series and we can actually say that because as we were mentioning before we started recording unbelievably one director for this whole franchise even though it spans over a decade yeah one director and he if memory serves right worked with mel gibson six times total four times on lethal weapon movies and two other times if memory serves right Oh, yeah, yeah, Conspiracy Theory. Yep. And Maverick. There and you Maverick. Go. I know, it's nobody ever remembers Maverick. No. Or uh, Conspiracy Theory, for that matter. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know what? I actually liked Conspiracy Theory. Well, we're, this isn't going to become Conspiracy Theory cast, but I'm just putting it out there. I actually like that movie a lot. That movie's goofy in kind of the weird ways like i don't know it's a movie i've watched like multiple times and every time i watch it i'm always pleasantly surprised and then i forget it exists and then i watch it again i'm like yeah. oh yeah that's right this actually wasn't so bad anyway, yeah okay so. okay okay we're getting back on okay. track it we were never even on the track so, to begin with so let's let's talk lethal about lethal weapon. weapon lethal weapon um what is your history with lethal weapon all of the history no it's it's obviously this was a movie that in the late 80s when i was in my uh blooming phase of cinema infancy if you will this was one that was a staple in our household right so uh, Mm -hmm. enough to the point that by the time that lethal weapon 4 came out in the late 90s um it was kind of a big family event we went out to see it you know and everything and what's funny is by by the year 2000 probably i don't know if i've watched a lethal weapon movie since mm. i think that's it's one of those weird ones that i watched it so much it was just so ingrained in my memory that i kind of just never went back to it because i knew them right so that's what makes like doing this podcast today such a fascinating um uh, it was a kind of a nostalgia trip for me because it was revisiting these movies i thought i knew yeah And then didn't know them nearly as well as I thought I did because 20 years has passed since I've really dug into them. So I think that was, for me, that's kind of where the the Lethal Weapon uh, franchise sits for me. But I don't know. What about you? What about you and and, uh, Mr. LW? (laughs) So um, this is one of those movies where it's like, it's one of those franchises where I know I saw the first two um, young. I know I did. But my first real clear memory is the third one. My dad had bought it on VHS. And it was just one of those VHSs that I ran on my VCR nonstop. Because the VCR we had in our room, 
didn't have a rewind button, so you know you had to watch the movie literally beginning of the tape to the end of the tape. So I even knew about the little button scene at the end of the credits in Lethal Weapon 3. Like, that's something I actively remembered. But what's weird is, for all that, as you said, I haven't watched any of these movies since probably the year 2000 myself. And <laughs> very seriously... For a movie I watched as much as I did in my childhood, did not remember a freaking thing about it. I remembered a few of the comedy bits, but I didn't remember the plot, like, in any way. And there's a reason yeah. for that, but we'll get there. We'll, yeah, yeah, we're going to get there. And that's what's, and as you mentioned, Richard Donner is the director of all four of these films. Um, obviously, the, the, the first film was kind of a big to-do uh, in terms of getting made. Um, but these films became such a quintessential staple. It's weird to think that after the third one, it took so long for the fourth one to come out. Um, mm -hmm. So Six years, that's yeah. kind of a fascinating thing. And on top of that, it does fascinate me that this franchise um, kind of personified a certain type of action, um, certain era of action, uh, especially that 80s buddy cop I mean, this was basically 48 hours, basically, um, except yeah. they were both cops. But you go from that until Lethal Weapon 4, because I have this theory that kind of cinema in general exists in my lifetime before The Matrix and after The Matrix. And if that's kind of my hard timeline in my life, Lethal Weapon 4 is kind of the swan song. It's the last guard of this old 90s, weirdly cut, everybody shoots everybody, no rules seem to exist for any of the police, kind of. The good guys are good, bad guys are bad, casual racism, sexism, and homophobia, A-okay, kind of old <laughs> guard of action movies, you know? And I'm not saying that's yeah. a bad thing, product of its era. It's, well, I mean, it is a bad thing, but it's product of its era and such. But it, it is just kind of interesting that the arc of this is, it goes from practically creating the buddy cop subgenre, or at least having a big hand in defining what it became, to being the swan song for that era of action. Yeah, and that's what makes, you know, especially as rumors are heating up for Lethal Weapon 5, uh, which, I mean, they've been on and off for a long time. And, we'll, and we'll they had that the reboot TV episode. series, even though feh. I love Damon Wayans, yeah. but. Yeah, well, right, right. It doesn't help that it was kind of a weirdly controversial series and everything. Mm. But, um, you know, I as as the rumors are heating up for Lethal Weapon 5, I find that this is a franchise of its period. Mm -hmm. This is a franchise, you know, the first one is 1987, correct? 87, yep. I believe. 87, 89, um, 92, and 98. Yes. So uh, 87 for the first one. And, you know, while, while it is an 80s movie, as you said, it's kind of like even a swan song towards the 80s. Mm -hmm. And kind of modernizing it a little bit and pushing it into the 90s. I mean, it's not like Terminator 2 where it like fully changes action cinema in the 90s. But you know it pushes it in that direction and so for me in my head lethal weapons more of that quintessential 90s mm. uh action franchise and as you said the 98 it's kind of the swan song of that era of things like that but this idea of like a lethal weapon 5 kind of sticks in my craw a little bit because like it's such a part of its time period like how do you modernize it like how do you 
how do you bring back Mel Gibson and Danny Glover for for something like this? And uh, and we can talk a little bit more about this at the end of the episode when we kind of talk about the franchise as a whole. But, you know, I feel like this franchise is so indebted to its era that it is a fascinating one to revisit to begin with. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about it today. Um, and I should say that before we get too far along and we dive into the first film, uh, Lethal Weapon, directed by Richard Donner, Let's take care of some business, Sean. As the chief would say, you got to fill out your paperwork and stop destroying shit. You got to stop destroying shit, right? That's what Captain says. Captain. Captain. So if you like what you hear today, guys, please check out our expanding back catalog wherever you listen to your podcasts on Anchor.fm, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or, of course, our newest avenue, YouTube. Check out our other series, No Franchise Fatigue, Good, Bad, Weird, Wild, Fatigued But Not Forgotten, and uh, for your lists only. So uh, we want to make sure that we uh, throw in all of those there. So if you guys want to check those out, we're a weekly podcast, so definitely Hang on, look for your weird cinematic analysis needs. And, as always, we are uh, doing a deep dive into the Lethal Weapon franchise, so, spoilers ahead. I mean, spoilers we're well ahead. past... Yeah, put on the spoiler siren. Put it on the top of your car. <laughs> we are well past pa. the uh, the old 10-year moratorium on spoiler, but nonetheless, spoilers for the yeah, entire Yeah, that's Lethal true, Weapon that's true, yeah. Well, it's 20 years, 22 years since the uh, this last, last film. yeah. So, in fact, it actually qualifies for a fatigued but not forgotten episode if we wanted to we wanted to do that. So, um, so definitely check us out. Check out our other episodes. And while you're there, rate, review, and subscribe. Why? Because you deserve the good things in your life. And you deserve a partner that will have your back no matter how many flamethrower armored tank men they encounter in their life. So, <laughs> that is the business sean i just gave you the business and with all that said grab the cat and tell me what the first lethal weapon is about lethal weapon 1987 directed by richard donner let's take a look at this one this one as you said kind of the quintessential late 80s buddy cop movie right uh you are introduced to a veteran kind of lapd detective named roger murtaugh played by the uh ever charming danny glover and he is recently partnered with a uh a quote-unquote lethal weapon, an unhinged cop named Martin Riggs, played by Mel Gibson, who, distraught after his wife's death in a car wreck, um, has now started taking a lot of unnecessary risks on the force. And there's rumors whether or not he's trying to earn crazy pension or uh, he's going to get somebody killed. So nobody wants to work with Martin Riggs anymore. So he gets partnered with um, Roger Murtaugh, simply because Roger Murtaugh is a by-the-books kind of guy. You have this antagonistic uh, kind of new partner-cop relationship, and unfortunately, like they do in every one of these films, they accidentally stumble into a much larger uh, conspiracy on hand. This time, it is weapon dealings from an ex-Special Forces group that uh, may or may not have ties to uh, Martin Riggs's uh, shady past as a sniper because he's a sniper, I guess, uh, sniper uh, in the war previous. Uh, here, the uh, team then uh, kind of encounters uh, a, the colonel and his, uh, how shall we say, also unhinged 
uh, henchman, Mr. Joshua, mm. uh, played by Gary Busey in a weirdly un-Gary Busey role, even though he's crazy in it. And uh, they stumble across these guys and uh, soon find themselves in the crosshairs of this ex-Special Forces group and uh, must defeat the group and save the day by the end of the movie. And that is 1987's Lethal Weapon. I'm just going to say 1987 as much now, since I felt bad that I couldn't remember mm-hmm. that at the beginning. So, um, first off... Without touching too far or jumping too far ahead or anything, this movie is wildly disparate from anything else in the franchise. Not in mood, not in writing. Um, I'd even say, you know, the humor gets refined as the series goes on, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a funny movie. This is very Shane Black. It's super quippy. It's super fast. But as you kind of touched on, I mean, not only is Mel Gibson's character like this special forces kind of like a joke vietnam super soldier kind of thing like he specifically says that at one point in the war when he was 19 years old he made a shot that to this day like eight people in the world could have made um you know killed this guy so he's got a lot of baggage from that but he's also just presented as just this uh, pure machine um, he's got this kind of wicked sense of humor, I think, exemplified by, far as I'm concerned, the best gag in the entire franchise when Danny Glover, very proud of himself, puts a bullet right through the middle of a target's head at the shooting range, and Riggs takes the same target, puts it about 150 yards further down range, it goes pop, 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 brings it back, and it turned into a smiley face. Yep. You know, this stuff is all really, really great, but it also hides this really, really serious streak that I think a few of the later ones maybe attempted but sort of lack in the sense of, like, our introduction to Riggs after a crazy drug bust that could have gotten everybody killed, exactly what you're talking about, is him sitting in his trailer with a bullet with his name on it and, like, literally putting it in his mouth and contemplating pulling the trigger that's that's a major plot point in this movie well and i think i think there's a key part to this that you know and this is something we've talked about briefly before in one of our earlier episodes but one of the keys for this this movie and its balance between kind of the dark and serious and this quippy funny comedy that would become kind of irrelevant to the the franchise in there uh is writer shane black Uh i think you know this was a huge script for him this put him on the map in terms of uh, getting a movie made right because he'd sweetened a few he'd sweetened a few scripts before but this was like his first big sale right that was like entirely right, his name. Right, and it was a huge sale. Uh, he made a lot of money off of this. There was a big bidding war off of this. Well, because he got he got Joel Silver behind it. Like Joel Silver produced all four of these movies too, and this is like yep. peak Joel Silver. Oh yeah, absolutely. So and uh, also putting Joel Silver kind of on the map because uh, just a year later, Joel Silver produced die hard if memory mm-hmm. serves correctly in 1988 so i think you're right so this is kind of like you know like we mentioned before in the intro kind of the um the changeover into uh into a different kind of action cinema away from the rambos and the schwarzeneggers well and because i was gonna say it's it's interesting that you can describe martin riggs as a super soldier and i have done and will continue to do so however he is not a one-man army this does kind of mark the end of that one-man army exactly as you're saying that one-man army army 80s rambo 2 you know firing the grenade bow and arrow and she's like 
that is just not what this is. It's, I don't want to say grounded, but it's more grounded than well, that. And, and this one, yeah, least. while we're talking about, yeah, like ex-Special Forces military gun smuggling. And, and as you said, Martin Riggs is, is a soldier and he, he gets to get in a couple fights and he, he goes shirtless for a good portion of this movie. Um, he, there's a, uh, I actually took a note about this probably by about Lethal Weapon 3, that before there was Tom Cruise running, there was Mel Gibson running. Um, he runs a lot in these movies. And so um, they very much portray him as an action star. And so, and he kind of plays more of a, I like this idea that his character is, uh, you know, a little bit off. He's kind of lost it, you know? Um, and, you know, he is. Yeah, only person he likes is his dog. Right, right. You know? Bless Sam. Uh, Sam Which is I, the best. I, I can understand that. Yeah. So Sam, yeah, Sam weirdly Sam disappears from this franchise, That's too. That's a good dog. Ugh. Um, but, you know, I like that he's a, a character that has a lot of depth to him. You know, there is this, you know, PTSD that he has. Uh, you know, his wife's death has really affected him. And it makes for an interesting character beat because as you mentioned you mentioned 48 hours earlier and i think that that's a good kind of a point to look at the the core for this and what shane black does well is he does buddy movies because he likes to have two people work off each other and that's what the core of this film is more so than anything else is you have murtaugh and riggs as almost antagonists for the first half of this movie they don't like each other they quip at each other they're really bickery you know, Murtaugh doesn't want him. In fact, there's the scene where Murtaugh pulls him aside and he's like, you're not trying to draw a crazy pension. You know, when he sees you're actually crazy. crazy. Yeah. yeah. But he starts to push him. He pushes him. And it's at this weird moment that they have. Oh, he ends up he ends up putting his gun in Riggs. Mouth. Yeah. And it's it makes for a really interesting relationship for this movie to start off on. Because, yeah, sure, you have 48 hours where you have the antagonist relationship, kind of the goofier one and then the more serious, hardcore one. Well, but at the same time, um, the, the previous iterations of that particular trope had always been exactly like 48 hours. It was Nick Nolte protecting a criminal. It wasn't two guys that had to work together. This was really the first buddy cop movie. right that cop cop yeah where it's like and there are two different kinds of cops you have the the button down one that wears a suit and you have the one that wears the leather jacket and you know while it's a trope now you know i can see why this was a movie that uh, did well i mean uh, going into the rotten tomato score 81 from critics 86 from audiences so this was a movie that was well received and uh i mean i think there's a fair few reasons for that um martin riggs for as tropey as he got and almost became a trope in and of himself the crazy cop or the cop on the edge that throws the rule book out the window etc whatever um like it was really compelling that first time through even rewatching it you know a couple of days ago for this podcast like that's a weirdly well-played character you almost forget how good mel gibson is when he's not being the scum of the earth in real life yeah well um and going off of like that, he had some real action shops like there was some there's some drama to it like there's there's a lot of good going on here sorry no, please i i just wanted to you know build on that because his acting in this movie is actually really good i think it's really good occasionally his accent slips into a little bit of his australian <laughs> yeah You'll notice that in the first three especially by you know um, but you'll see it, it comes in and out, but you know, not only do you, as the scene you mentioned where he has the gun in his mouth, where he's sitting alone in the trailer he's watching three stooges, which I do think is a funny 
concept about violence for humor for humor's sake that does keep coming back by the yes, way yes they bring back the three stooges at least in the first three movies um and so uh, which is an interesting parallel that we can draw later if you want about three stooges and the the comedy of violence right uh which i think shane black mm-hmm. specifically put in there for that reason but um that's a little bit besides the point um you know he does this really great performance and in fact i wanted to bring up there's actually another moment later on um, that I actually think is even better acting moment. Don't get me wrong. Like him with the gun in his mouth is intense, right? And supposedly in that mm-hmm. scene, he actually did have a gun, a bullet in the gun to give the the scene Jesus even Christ. more realism. He wanted to give it a, a little bit of weight. Um, I read that somewhere. I don't remember where I read that, but... Um, I mean, he was he was crazy and just off of a George Miller movie. I actually believe oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was like, oh, you don't do this? Um, <laughs> we did this all the time in Australia. <laughs> but down in australia <laughs> yeah, yeah. Down in exactly. australia, everything's <laughs> deadly um but there is a scene later on where he after he leaves dinner at the murtaugh's house uh which is a, mm. a great scene and you get to see kind of how like murtaugh is put together right how how exactly opposite are they uh as characters and as he's leaving he makes the mention about making that shot only eight or 10 people could make that shot and it's incredibly well shot by richard donner where he's like kind of half hidden by the truck and he talks Mm -hmm. about that moment where he's like you know this was you know only eight or 10 people could make that shot because this is what i'm good at it's the only thing i'm good at he's at such a dark place where you killing people he destroys things that's how he thinks of himself as a killer or a destroyer you know and enough so because like Right before that, Murtaugh says, you know, I'll trust you if you can go one day without killing yourself or another person. And then he tells that story (laughs) and he's like, but that's who I am. And that's this really subtle moment from Mel Gibson that I think is really powerful and really good, not only about his PTSD, but about his outlook and life as a character. And that's one of those Shane Black moments that I think is really good in terms of writing and partner that with a direction by Richard Donner, who directs the shit out of this movie. He I mean that he does we'll get into that in a second but I think that that in in terms is why Mel Gibson kind of almost maintained himself as a breakout star because of this movie is because of scenes like those uh, partnered with his action chops definitely the one more thing I want to touch on in this you you touched on it briefly but uh, a pre-motorcycle accident Gary Busey as just a terrifying villain like we've had kind of the emotionless terminator hench kick a few times and sidekick henchman you know what i'm uh, saying yeah. hench yeah. kick i'm henchman, going with it yeah, yeah. but um we've had that a few times but gary Busey brings this intensity to it where it's like even though the entire character's deal is that he's emotionless and a complete blank slate it's still Gary Busey's crazy eyes, you know, and there's, it just gives an edge to that character that I've always loved. And for my money, personally, the final fight with the, you know, the water spraying and Busey's trying to hit Gibson with the pole and, you know, Murtaugh throws him the nightstick and he's got the nightstick up and he's blocking and he's protecting himself. That is probably my favorite, uh, action movie fistfight ending possibly ever uh western what? <laughs> action movie fistfight ending clarification uh, <laughs> let us a hollywood that is an important clarification hollywood yeah. 
But um, because just, uh, you know, you find out that they were in the same Special Forces unit, and there's kind of an emotionality to that fight, and just a desperation, because, boy, it's not a pretty fight. No. At all. They they get dirty. It's ugly. And I think this brings up a good point. There's a couple of points, more points I want to make about this movie before we move on. But oh, certainly. Um, the, the first one is this unit, this villainous unit that shows up. Yeah, we get to see them pretty early on and whatnot. Um, but as we were talking off mic, this movie is kind of a mystery film to begin with. So you see glimpses of it, which is where Gary Busey kind of works best in this movie as a presence, mm-hmm. uh, more than anything else. Um, and I love the fact that they, he refers himself as Mr. Joshua. Like that's an interesting kind of normal name. That's not normal because of who it is. Um, but like he overshadows the Colonel as the main villain of this movie. Um, so, and it makes it, so it's a fascinating move as the, as the movie goes from just being about an antagonist characteristics, it takes half the movie for them to set up the characters to be able to get to the plot, which is a really kind of an interesting structure to this film. What's kind of cool is, uh, everything you need to know about Mr. Joshua and the Colonel actually kind of as characters is from their first interaction where that dealer's like, you know, Oh, no, because they're running drugs, not guns. In this oh, one. that's right. They're running, yes, right, you're correct, drugs. Heroin, because they, uh, they had to connect from Vietnam, from Vietnam that's right. Yes. My apologies. But, um, but, yeah, one of the dealers is like, you know, pisses off the colonel somehow. Boy, watching all these in a row, it's hard to keep track of what's going on in them. But, um, basically, he tells Mr. Joshua to hold his arm out, and he just makes him light the flame under it, and he just holds it and holds it and hold now that's a character introduction god yes damn. absolutely yeah great character introduction great ending for him um it's it's good one of the other things i want to mention is we talk a lot about mel gibson he does steal this movie i have to throw it out there to danny glover because danny glover is meant to be a the essentially the other side of the coin of martin riggs and i think he does it wonderfully in this movie he is very charming mm-hmm. his family man mannerisms are fantastic he has good chemistry because you get this idea that he's a good cop and he's an intense cop mm-hmm. so he can match martin riggs at his intensity whatever but he has control and and unlike your typical kind of button down by the rules cop like getting the bad guy is more important to him like he's not he's not buttoned down like a like a Columbo or like a TV cop or anything like that. Like he will put bullets in dudes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that Danny Glover, there's a reason why this duo works and, and Danny Glover's a big part of that. I do think that, that Absolutely. we need to, I don't want to take a thing away from him. Yeah. Throw some, throw some, uh, some praise his way. Okay. And by the way, some decent action shops himself. Speaking of a thin Shane black connection, but uh predator, two. predator two. you know, Danny Glover, I don't think he ever got his fair shake, but the action movies he was in, he was very good was at very all good. of them. Well, and I, the scene, so in the finale of this movie, uh, as you find out that the special forces people kidnap Murtaugh's daughter, um, and then they take her to this warehouse to bring them out, and, and Martin Riggs escapes. But the, the torture scenes that are happening in this final moment show how dark this movie mm. can get. You know, this idea that Riggs is being electrocuted and, and Danny Glover, who uses the phrase, go spit, he uses it, which becomes a, his kind yeah. of a catchphrase later on. Not only am, am I too old for this shit, which is a catchphrase, but, um, you know, that becomes like one of his things is go spit. 
but that scene where he's tied to the chair his the performance by danny glover is incredible there as like as this like guy who just got the shit kicked out of him you know and you know there's some mm-hmm. there's some good stuff in here from him so i just wanted to bring that up so and then uh, last point maybe i just want to make is that um richard donner uh, direct, i mentioned it directs the shit out of this movie and everything you need to know about him as a director is introduced in this movie before even any of the main characters introduced and it's that opening shot that opening sequence where Mm. you get the opening with the jingle bell rock because this movie is a christmas movie which is why we're doing it in december um is uh opens to jingle bell rock and it's got the sweeping shot of the city it pans to this woman this this partially nude woman on a bed there's like this this drug use in there and then she promptly goes over the railing like she hangs over this railing and it's kind of this almost ethereal dreamlike moment um and then it's just brought down to reality by her falling and hitting this car really violently and i feel like that's everything you need to know about this movie the the score to it with that jazzy saxophone that's happening at this point right after the jingle bell rock goes this urban like landscape how dark and wispy it is that indicates this is the ground level that we're going to build everything on and i think richard donner does it in such an incredible way in this movie it just goes to show you how good he was especially in his early part of his career before he did movies like 16 blocks but um you know how how good he is at this at this kind of material here and how good he is at taking Shane Black's script and really balancing that edge of being an edgy, dark, violent movie and still making it entertaining and fun. And I think that that's what Lethal Weapon does best um, as a movie. And I think it's the combination of great stars, Richard Donner and Shane Black that really, really execute this well. That's my thing I wanted to say about Richard Donner's directing in this. And uh, I think it, it should be uh, praised for what it is. So, But I think that fairly handily brings us to Lethal Weapon 2, which starts off with a bang, just a huge car chase, uh, hilariously in Murtaugh's wife's station wagon that he's desperate to not scratch up, which we all know how that's going to go. Is it going to fit? Is it going to fit? But <laughs> oh, you were right. It's not gonna fit. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't fit. fit. <laughs> that that's a good bit. The driver gets away, but they do have the car, and they discover a whole bunch of South African gold in there. Which, by the way, I did end up having to look up, and that is a real thing. Um, those those gold coins, the Cougarans. So, um, basically, because of apartheid and bunch of stuff in you know real life history that was absolutely horrid um cougarans are super illegal so they kind of figure out that there is a smuggling operation happening and really really rapidly we're talking within the first 20 minutes even find the bad guy this is not a mystery which is a south african dignitary but that's the entire point he has diplomatic immunity and props where it's due not going to editorialize much in this in the uh (laughs) synopsis but man that is a good hook for an 80s action movie like it doesn't work legally at all that's not how diplomatic immunity actually works but for just a basic (laughs) action movie kind of thing it's pretty cool but regardless, um, Riggs and Murtaugh basically start a terror campaign on 
the South African guy up until the point where they get attacked. Um, like in the personal life, they, they attack Martin, his home and his family. Well, threaten him and it becomes very, very personal. So they go shoot up the operation, destroy everything and kill the bad guy anyway because 80s action movie politics only go as far as it's interesting for the story and then they just kind of shoot everybody i i know i'm being kind of flippant with this and i'm usually way way better on my synopsis but this movie's completely ludicrous because that's it that's the entire synopsis it's a money laundering scheme with a guy with diplomatic immunity and literally they don't stray far from that at all there's a Brief moment where, of course, they pick up Leo Getz, but even Leo, played brilliantly by the irascible Joe Pesci, even Leo ties into this plot because he's the guy laundering the money for him. Yeah. So. And I think that, that you're absolutely right. I want to touch on two points that you just made. Number one, this movie by all means. does start off with a bang. Wow. The title card is a bang. It's like, boom, metal words with a blood red two like, that's like painted on there. Yeah. Um, this movie already knows that this is what people. Oh, like. and we are going to be touching on intros again yes. because oh, yes. Lethal Weapon notes Three for all of them now. <laughs> I read this one because I was like, "Oh, this is up." But you're right. This opening car chase is a big enough action sequence to be the finale in most other movies, which is yeah, it's incredible. To and start it's off because it is, and it's it's that classic '80s style of doing a car chase too. They shut down a section of freeway. There's like precision driving. Like it's just really fun to watch a good old car chase. Yeah. At one point, even Riggs is chasing them on foot. <laughs> Because of course he of is. Of course he is. Because uh, Mel Gibson runs. We have come to this conclusion. Um, so yes, incredible <laughs> opening sequence to this movie. And yes, it immediately gets us into the plot, which is my second point. If the first one was a little bit more of a mystery that was driven by characters, even the plot of that movie was drawn back to those characters. It was because of Riggs's unit or his special forces, same things. There was a little bit of that tie in here. This one, it's very much separate. It's like they literally stumble into a diplomatic situation, right? Which is way above their pay grade. Mm -hmm. um, and it's yeah. very plot driven. This one is very, very very plot heavy in a lot of times enough so that some of the subplots are very much there specifically to drive forward the main plot and i'm looking at your well, romantic love interest i was about to say because she shows up like two times and is just immediately taken with martin riggs he gets her in bed and like 15 minutes later she did. she did she is and although the reveal of her underwater like drowned is a good reveal that was really good well yeah. shot again, and Richard Donner. um you know and and speaking of a good reveal they they Chekhov's gun that really well too because uh they make a whole thing about Riggs's ability to escape uh straight jackets right. which almost seems like a gimmick at the beginning but again everything in this movie is is really tightly woven into the plot progressions mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it's ham-fisted. The, the straight jacket opening is a little ham-fisted, but it, it comes into play. But this also hits a different level than, say, a Robocop 3. I'm talking the South African villain thing. Um, it hits a different angle because one of our main characters in this case is black. And boy, they don't shy away from that. Like, the South African dudes call him... Uh, I don't remember what the word is, and I wouldn't repeat it anyway, but whatever that South African equivalent of right. 
um, a racial epithet is, and they call him that throughout the entire movie. Yeah, and there's and what I do like about this movie is that because the plot is a little bit heavier, it's not a generic. Oh, look, it's drug smugglers, you know, ex-military drug smugglers. Which end up, you know, in 1987, probably not the most tropey of things. It definitely becomes a huge trope later on in action cinema. Um, I like that this one, it has a little bit of political ties to it. It's got, it plays into racism quite a bit. The scene where Danny Glover goes in to the, uh, to the embassy and, and Joe Pesci's oh like, God. Joe Pesci's when like, Leo's, yeah, he wants when to Leo's like, I'm trying to talk my, I'm trying to talk my friend out of immigrating. And the guy's like, why would you want to yeah, do that? South Africa's, South Africa's great. a great and country. The, and then he shows up, but he's black. Yeah. yeah. You're black. He's black. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's played for some comedic effect, but there's a really good like subtext to that. That's happening in this movie. Oh, because everybody stops cold and is just looking at him like they're goddamn crazy. When Danny Glover walks yeah. in. Yeah. And you know, Danny Glover plays up the thing that he wants to go down there to be part of the revolution and things like that. And he plays it up right for some comedic effect and whatnot. But I actually, I like that this movie has that in there. Sure. It's not a main point of this movie. It's not going to really hit on that as hard um as it as it, it might have right but it's there and i like that it's there because there's at least some subtext to it i mean and you get to you know as uh as much as it doesn't look as funny from a 2020 viewpoint you do get to have you know mel gibson call him you know adolf and things like that the uh yeah. the, you know that little bit uh I'm just like walking in and shooting the fish. Yeah. Yeah. There's some good stuff in there uh, in terms of like getting some jokes in there along with it. But, you know, the, everything is connected and tied together, which I do appreciate. And I do want to uh, lean in on Joe Pesci just a little bit. What a great addition. Like the one, two, three of Riggs, Merton gets, you know, what is leo gets leo gets fucked yeah, yeah. Love. yeah whatever you need leo gets but okay so let me ask you this because we brought this up earlier right you add in joe pesci to this joe pesci is obviously a very intense energy right in every role mm-hmm. he's in he's a very intense energy right so my theory is is that obviously it we you know if you're a studio and you're looking at, okay, why did the first one work, right? There has to be an antagonistic relationship. They feel like that was part of the reason it worked, right? So Leo Getz is brought in to essentially replace that. And so now we have them being antagonistic against him, right? For good, for solid portions of this movie. One thing I actually like, they don't have the fallout thing. Like they stay buddy, buddy, this whole movie and actually the rest of the franchise really. And so they bring that in, but here's my question. Do you think, that the reason they got such an intense kind of goofy energy from Joe Pesci, I mean, he's foul mouthed and whatnot, and he hates drive throughs as we very quickly find out. And, uh, you know, he's, I like that. He, they have him doing their laundry and things like that. At one point, it's kind of fun, but. Oh, when he cleans up Riggs's trailer. Oh, it's so funny where the TV's outside. Oh, so, so funny. Good. Uh, yeah. the dog can't come in. Um, but, but, uh, you know, I I like this, but do you think the intention with especially that energy was not only to create that antagonistic, but to bring in a Three Stooges energy? You know, uh, what's funny is it's only in the course of us recording this 
that that occurred to me. You brought up the Three Stooges thing in the first one, and I realized that. I actually think you are exactly right. Because there's a lot of that physical he's, comedy he's, with He's him. your curly. He's your shemp. He's he's the butt of every joke. Right. He's the butt of the jokes. And there's like even the scene when they first or first introduced him and they go to the hotel room or whatever. And it's kind of a weird sequence where they're first introduced to him and they like keep pushing him. Like they push him into each other. And he like hits his face on their mm-hmm. chests and stuff because he's shorter, right? And then they end up going out the window immediately with him, right? Like it's it's almost which, played for like a Three Stooges comedy bit. Which, uh, not for nothing and completely apropos of nothing we're talking about, but something I did notice in the course of watching these movies, Danny Glover is fucking huge. That guy's got to be 6'3 or something. <laughs> No, yeah, absolutely. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great running jokes in this, and, and Joe Pesci's one of them. And, you know, okay, 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 okay. I, but you also brought up, like, it's his... There's there's a lot of good running jokes into this, and that's how I think that, because it's so plot-heavy, that they're able to just embed these running jokes. So they don't have to come up with new oh, ones. Oh, the, uh, the nail gun? The nail gun, the, the wife's car. I love that even when you have the uh, the bomb on the toilet seat sequence. I mean, there's a lot of weird blowing up things like who would blow up a fucking diving board, (laughs) which is a great stunt, incredible stunt. The scene where the South Africans are, yeah, just basically they call war on the cops and they start assassinating cops. And some, one of them's like really, really brutal. There's another kind of black cop that not quite enough to be a co-star, but he's certainly featured throughout this movie. And dude's just working out and gets aced in such a cold-hearted fashion. That one's not a joke. Like, holy shit. No. But then to follow that up immediately with seeing the the female cop, you know, jumping on the diving board and the bomb just goes off on her. It's like, what? <laughs> I was the same way. I was like, I was like, that is such a ridiculous scene. But I was like, there for it. I'm there for it 100%. But even then, like, you know, Murtaugh gets stuck on his toilet um which mm-hmm. is a fun scene it's a fun kind of a tense scene even though it doesn't make a lot of logical sense uh in the end like why wouldn't you just disarm the bomb um versus like have put all the mats and then have to dive behind it and let it explode it does result in the toilet shooting out and landing on the station wagon his wife's station wagon which has already been torn apart and you're like okay that whole sequence yeah it's a little bit silly but it was worth it for that weirdly threaded joke that's in there that's just a visual gag and it's like bang and you know that the a toilet which is fully intact after a bomb like it blew (laughs) like doesn't make sense we're not asking questions but uh it's kind of a golden moment so and if I'm if I'm honest, I do wish there was a little more to comment on because I actually really really like this movie, but it's also like simultaneously for as much good as it has going for it, it is just dead down the center an 80s action movie. Um it's not as trailblazing as the first one. Again, outside of the diplomatic immunity shtick, which is a really clever thing and really really tight writing like you're talking about, you know, setting up the the nail gun and the bomb and they actually set a lot of this stuff in motion throughout it but um but other than that you know there's not really the the cool special forces shtick they they pretty much drop the super soldier thing altogether Riggs is just a crazy guy now well and what's interesting is he's Um, almost not even i mean he's crazy right you get this idea that he's a little bit like of a loose cannon still but he doesn't really get crazy until the last 20 minutes 
And it's after they yeah, kill yeah. her, which again is kind of, I mean, they totally fridge her for, for that moment. But you get the, the henchman, who I, I can't think of the actor's name who plays the henchman in this, but I also really like him. He's also a pretty a good presence. Mm-hmm. His look is very memorable. Um, the, the henchman makes a comment, and I'm going to ask you this question because I want to know whether or not you believe this is true or not. The henchman makes a comment that they are the ones that killed Riggs' wife. And that's why Riggs kind of goes a little bit wonky. And he he keeps saying they killed both of them. They killed him or whatever. Now, did they actually kill his wife? Or was that just the villain jabbing him in the kidney a little bit? Uh, Yeah, I think it was just jabbing him in the kidney a bit. I, I, because to me, if that were true and it was literal, that hits small universe syndrome a little bit, which I'm never a fan of, you know, let let ray just be ray she doesn't need to be right and and that was a little bit when they said it i was like i don't know if that's a brilliant move or an idiot move in terms of the script because i didn't need it you know just like this idea that the first lady he kind of you know starts to have feelings for they kill her right like he can't get away from the death and destruction i think is enough for me but they threw that in there which is almost a weirdly like throwaway line that triggers him or whatever but um, you do get a little bit of, of crazy rigs in the last third and uh, the last act of this. And I really do appreciate it enough so that he tears down a house with his bare hands. Uh, OK, with a truck. But uh, and the physics don't work. Don't think about it too hard. It's very much 80s action. But, um, you know, it's a very commando moment. But, you know, he does tear down a house. Yeah, that's true. The concept fucking rules, though. This idea of that, like, he's like, I'm not a cop anymore. And he literally goes and tears down a house. <laughs> I, did I mention the Rotten Tomatoes score for this one yet? I don't think I did. That's pretty good. Um, Lethal Weapon 2. Critics, 82. Higher than the first one. First one was 81. Lethal so Weapon 2, actually 82. better than the first one. Yeah, better by one point. Audience score is a 77. I um, Yeah, no, no, no. It's, it, it's definitely a good movie. It's definitely a good 80s action movie. It's just not quite as trailblazing i think honestly that's the biggest complaint you can give it yeah i i don't think i have any other notes for lethal weapon 2 do you do you want to move on to uh three yeah no i'm i'm uh yes and i do have a fair amount to say about this. Uh, yes i think we all do so lethal weapon 3 directed by richard donner 1992 uh i want to say isn't the tagline for this the magic is back it's like a really stupid tagline anyway um i'm pretty sure i read that somewhere and i was like what is to look this? up that poster now you got me curious uh yeah um all right so lethal weapon 3 this time uh murtaugh and Riggs, still partners uh are not facing off against special forces they're not facing off against corrupt diplomats that are running you know uh, money schemes and things like that they are going against corrupt cops and lapd uh they have set their sights they have stumbled onto a weapons smuggling group uh run by an ex-police officer who has recruited a lot of uh uh recently released convicts and things like that to uh be able to run into the police system get uh get these guns out of the police system and then sell them onto the streets uh we also have uh the return of joe pesci uh in this movie along with a brand new character that is introduced which is an 
internal affairs cop uh, played by Renee Russo, who quickly, quickly, very quickly becomes a romantic love interest for Martin Riggs uh, in this movie. They uh, all have to come together to take down this corrupt cop and uh, a weird series of vignettes, essentially. <laughs> and that, that's it. That's literally Lethal Weapon 3. So I'm glad you pointed out the vignette thing, because here's my thing with Lethal Weapon 3. Uh, I don't hate this movie. I really don't. But the plot is inconvenient to this movie. And the action is inconvenient to this movie because apparently all this movie wants to be is a series of Saturday Night Live bits with Riggs and Murtaugh. You know, it opens up on the most botched bomb defusal ever where it's like, even even for Martin Riggs, it's like, are, are you just wait for the goddamn bomb squad. Are you kidding yeah. me? You can't outthink the bomb, dude. Yeah, obviously, and... He's not a bomb squad guy. It, this is the ultimate cold opening. And while it does play mm-hmm. into the plot, at least for one moment, because they get demoted because of it to beat cops um, because of their inability to do it. This movie reeks this opening cold open sequence just reeks that they found a building that was ready to be demolished. And they were like, how do we utilize mm-hmm. this in one of our upcoming movies? That, that's literally what it is. So elements of this movie introduced. Let me think. So um, there's there's a few things I do kind of like about this. For one, like if we're talking segments, the armored car chase is actually really good. That's a very exciting chase, mm, especially yes. in a movie where a lot of the action, especially a lot of the fisticuffs action suffers from nineties editing. You pretty much have to lean on the car chases. At least I do for my entertaining action in this movie. Cause the car stunts are actually pretty good in this flick. I can certainly, however, do without the comedy bit of the, lady who is just spontaneously in love with Murtaugh and you know she's like singing and every time they they do a cut back to her and she's just got some other comment oh baby you're the jelly in my donut she only appears one more time after the initial sequence so you don't even get the comedy bit of doing it in three like there's no real payoff for that shit that's a good point there's no payoff for it you literally it's introduced you see her again and the whole time I was like oh she's gonna show up again and then doesn't Although I do have to uh, really, really blow out my nerd cred here and point out that uh, Billy Phelps, the other, the the bad guy stealing the armored car that Riggs knocks out, uh, you have the right to remain unconscious. Anything you say or do won't be much, which is a it great is line. a great line. Is played by Mark Pellegrino, who. Some people might know as one of the two thugs from the beginning of The Big Lebowski. Um, oh. The one who's like, what the hell is this? Oh, clearly you're not a golfer. But us real nerdy nerds would know him as Jacob from Lost slash Lucifer from Supernatural. Oh, oh. See, I don't watch TV, so I don't know those. But The Big Lebowski caught my eye. <laughs> I forgot about that. So. <laughs> no, I, I just really like Mark Pellegrino. And I was like, even watching the movie, like I'm like, is that Mark Pellegrino? Why is... Look it up and he doesn't even have a line of dialogue, I don't think. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, I don't know if he does. Yeah, he just kind of lifts his head at one point and then he knocks him out again. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's not a yeah, there's not a lot. Well, does he get a line in the police station when the villain? No, shows him I, I think uh, I think Jack just shoots him. Yeah, mm. yeah, I think Jack just shoots him. It's random. Okay. Or maybe he says I didn't say nothing, but none, nonetheless, we don't we don't want to get too in the Mark Pellegrino hole. I'm just saying, like, yeah. kind of cool that he's in it. Yeah um okay yeah that's random i would have never picked that up <laughs> that's not a name i would have been like okay there's that guy um now that being said um so there's a weird subplot subplot air quotes about the cop killer bullets these these like armor piercing rounds they basically used to set up the kill at the end of the movie right um oh also to take out uh <laughs> their young cop buddy who doesn't even get named aloud they just keep calling him kid so i ended up going with patrolman gonna bite it yeah <laughs> because everybody makes the the joke you know he's he's a cop that's eight days from retirement or fresh you know he's the rookie cop that's eight days from retirement but this movie actually has both murtaugh is eight days from retirement and it does have a rookie cop get killed in their yeah. arms. Like, that is a thing that happens in this movie. I literally, I put one of my notes on here is, is young cop, why the fuck is he in this? Oh, he died. That was unearned. That is literally the note <laughs> that I have about that character. Um, mm-hmm. I was like, why is he in this? What is this, the point of this? Um, yes. So, I think the real question here, and I, I'd love your take on it, um, is what do you think of the addition of Rene Russo, uh, Lorna? So I actually have a, some interesting notes on this that I took while I was doing it. Because namely, uh, we won't get into this right now, but this is the first movie where they really give Murtaugh and Riggs separate plot lines. True. Because Riggs has the Rene Russo one, Mur- and then Murtaugh has and his... Murtaugh's- dealing with uh, his yeah, son he's dealing with well his son's friend, right yeah. his existential crisis of retiring and then also with these guns being on the street um which they don't nearly dig into like they should because there's this really interesting idea of like these you know these kids on the street that might be dealing drugs that have these like high-powered weapons that is just kind of weirdly brushed over um it doesn't have nearly yeah. the heart and depth that it needs to that's besides the point you asked me about renee russo renee russo is an interesting character in this movie i like the addition of an internal affairs a police officer because that adds a lot of pressure to our heroes because they're not by the book so the fact that the movie like literally just kind of pushes that aside um and introduces her more as a love character feels forced and i don't love it i like renee russo in the role i actually really like her in the role but the fact that they have a romantic sequence that starts off by comparing scars once again in a movie post jaws where nobody needs to be doing scar comparisons i don't know i get it i get it they would need some fresh blood into this particularly because and we'll get to joe pesci in a second that he's not in this movie um, and they need something fresh into it. And I get it. And that's a way for them to add it. And it gives Riggs something to do. His rant about getting fucked at the hospital and then insurance fucks you $10 for a fucking aspirin. That's a pretty good. No, joke. it is a good joke. My problem with Joe Pesci. And if you want to, or do you have anything to say about Rene Russo? No, or do you want to get into Joe? Pesci um, already? I think, I think I'm generally 
kind of more positive on her broadly. However, I am also of the personal theory that she was two characters that were mashed together at some point because her character diametrically changes. Oh. Like it is a completely disparate character after her and Riggs get together. Yeah, it's it's weird, and it does it doesn't work for me. Um, again, mm-hmm. I I like the idea. I just don't think I I think having two separate plot lines for the characters it spreads things too thin. I actually think she's a character that smooths out in the sequel, even though she's barely in four. She's but barely in four, right? Which is actually a problem I have with four, but we'll get to that. Um, we'll get to that. So let's talk about Joe Pesci then. So obviously Joe Pesci can be very funny. Um, he has his moments in this. Why is he in this movie? I know he's popular. Um, I know he's popular. Oh no. It's, it's cause he was in the second one and he was just coming off of my cousin Vinny, and, which I think was the year before. And this. he was very popular. I get it. It's the early nineties. He got his name on the poster. Like, why mm-hmm. is his name on the poster? Oh, he's, yeah, it's 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 him trying to jam himself between the two of them. That's like, that's the poster. And by the way, I just looked it up. It is The Magic is Back. Again. Is it? <laughs> it's so bad. Yeah. Why is that a tagline? Okay. That's a weird tagline for this movie. So there's, there's I have a lot of problems. Oh, I, I did say one second. First, first things first, actually. And this is literally first, first things. First things. The intro. Oh, the title sequence. What the hell? Come on, oh fire my God. is very popular. It's just, it is very popular. It's just like a slow-mo fire on water and this song. And it's not even the whole song. It's like a 45-second snippet of this song while this fire's going. And it says Lethal Weapon 3. And it's like, this looks like a television opening. Like a, like a 90s syndicated TV opening. Yeah, and... Well, I, okay, so... As I said, this is 1992. This is Terminator 2 with the fire. Mm-hmm. Fire is popular. And just like Joe Pesci, it doesn't belong to be. It doesn't belong here in this opening sequence. No, like the three is the fire in the beginning. And it's like, bam, it's like, here's fire. It's like they had to top two. And they were like, how do we top two? Fire. Well, and what's what's funny is, you know, you don't need to add too much to that theme. You, I remember you texting me when you were watching uh, the very, very first one, probably about a week before we are recording this, and you're like, and, and you said straight up, it's one of the great themes. And mm-hmm. that's actually true, right? That just that lonely saxophone is one of the great themes in action. It's so good. Um, I actually think, well, and even though the... F- it's understated. It Right. Yeah, sorry, no, I even though the score for the first one can be melodramatic at times, the theme for Lethal Weapon is very good, and I think that that it, it deserves to be there. Um, yes, so I do I do agree with that. So, um, yes, yeah, so the intro uh, is terrible for this movie. It's a terrible title card. Please go away. Uh, and then then it it opens to a giant building that blows up that doesn't need to be there because you know what they don't need to blow up a building mm-hmm. to get demoted. They freaking killed. A guy at the end of two that was had diplomatic immunity. That's enough to get him demoted. Like you didn't need they the could building. have actually started with him demoted. It would yeah, have been way totally better. True. I would have been okay with it, but whatever. Okay, that's besides the point. Um, the villain. Uh... The villain in this is forgettable. I I I literally could not remember his name until you said it. <laughs> Couldn't. I was like, don't remember. Don't remember the actor. Don't remember the name. You know. Don't remember the henchman. Don't remember anything. It's all gone. And it's it's heartbreaking because you come off of Mr. Joshua, 
then diplomatic immunity, then Jack, whatever the hell Travis? his last name was, like Jack Travis. Yeah. There you go. I did remember it. Ha <laughs> Um, like oh, and just the whole it coming down to armor piercing bullets going through <laughs> a bulldozer, which no. Our armor piercing armor piercing bullets from an Uzi is not going through no fucking two inches of no, steel. It's, it's not happening. The, the entire finale of this is kind of a letdown. I mean, it's a it's a build it's a frame a house frame that's on fire. That's it. That's it. I mean, yeah, sure you get fire, but like, great. Like, <laughs> like that doesn't you know? Yeah. That's that's a it it doesn't really work for me. Now I will say this. Mm-hmm that I do like that the ending of this film is a recreation of the introduction to Murtaugh from the first film of him in the bathtub with his family coming around and, and bringing him it's a retirement cake this time. And then he decides not to retire instead of a birthday. Right. I actually really liked that, that that was a recreation of that moment. Cause I was like, Oh, that was a movie I liked so much better. Um, <laughs> makes me feel good. Oh, and the bit, the bit about Murtaugh's daughter being in, Oh shit. No, it was the second one where she's in the condom commercial. I wanted to point that out. Cause that, that bit's actually really it funny. Is funny, especially because Joe Pesci's um, character. <laughs> like I want to watch this commercial. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you should see the girl they got in it. She's yeah. beautiful. Makes me want to buy a condom. Um, then this one's the one where uh she's so, on set in this okay. one and he tackles the director which or actually leads into a note i did have about lethal weapon 3 here is lethal weapon 3 in a nutshell i, I already mentioned the snl comedy bits but it's comedy bits with riggs and Murtaugh and sometimes joe pesci and then it is basically some sort of bit ends with Riggs noticing a crime and running headfirst at it. And that is every scene of this film. Oh, he movie. runs. This is the one where I, I mentioned it. I said before there was Tom Cruise running, there was Mel Gibson running. The He runs down that mm-hmm. like that tube with the train or whatever on the train tracks or whatever, the subway. And you're like, I'm sorry, what? And, and he has that just so 90s action movie shot where he's driving the motorcycle and his mullet's flowing in the wind. Yes so good um <laughs> that's so ridiculous and and, and wow. also part of the vignette thing like this movie does have like you said there's there's skits to this why are we at an ice hockey game i mean joe the dumb dumb wound gag is pretty funny but... yeah joe you know joe pesci's there like they bring him in because he knows people he's connected right they're like how do we get to this guy and joe pesci literally is like he'll be at a hockey game and like i was like okay i guess and then you know why is he a real estate guy in this like why is that a thing i mean there's a couple of good jokes but like it's unneeded it's unnecessary um and totally not followed up on yeah it's not really whatever he gets to show up at the end and they're like we're not selling the house and he's like damn it um i mean you get the good scene where he's showing the house but where he's like yeah and there's the bomb damage it's all been remodeled because of the bomb damage (laughs) Well, I very I very distinctly get the impression this wasn't necessarily written as Lethal Weapon 3. Yeah, uh, that could be. Um cuz I do know um Die Hard with a Vengeance was originally written as Lethal Weapon 3. 
Right. And notoriously for these sequels, there usually is quite a few um, scripts that go through. Passes yep. their versions. Yeah. They go through it. Like Lethal Weapon 4 went through like five or six major scripts uh, before they landed on one that wasn't finished. But um, <laughs> we'll get to that here in a second. Um, but I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head if there was a multiple or if this was a uh, one from previous or a different film or anything. But like it, that. it certainly feels like it. Like I said, the Russo character alone was definitely two characters at some point. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I strongly believe that. Yeah. It feels that way. It feels like this is a movie that's where the studio got too involved with it. I, I feel less of Richard mm-hmm. Donner in this movie. A lot less of Richard Donner in this movie. Um, and like he's kind of here doing the paycheck thing uh, for it. Yeah. But, uh, and it makes it it makes it problematic. So, um, also this is the this movie. Have? What I dislike about this movie is that Riggs never mentions his late wife. Uh, Riggs. He doesn't in the other three, but not this one. And it it's I don't know. It seems like... Riggs has just gone full loose cannon zany cop. Like he barely has a personality anymore. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's not nearly the crazy guy. And even when they try to like sell it, because there's a scene, cause there's an interesting idea of, of Murtaugh having the existential crisis in this movie and he's losing his mm-hmm. edge because he's retiring. Um, and his gun accidentally goes off in the locker room and to cover it up, Riggs pretends he's nuts. Acts like he's going yeah. crazy. And yeah. everyone's like, Oh, it's just Riggs again. But you never see that in this movie of him actually going crazy. So like the scene doesn't, really work unless you just remember the other movies (laughs) so i will say um there is one because this is all bits um there is one bit in this i did like about trying to teach uh murtaugh the spinning back kick and then tricking him into kicking over the yeah water but then that actually comes back and he does the spinning back kick. he's like oh shit that actually works (laughs) yeah (laughs) and that was actually a decent callback yeah but no, this movie's definitely, yeah, we'll we'll get into rankings, but it's not my favorite of the four. Right. Um, I'm trying to look up anything about the script for this. Um, okay, I'm, I'm looking here. It does have weird writing credits to begin with with Lethal Weapon 3. Uh, Jeffrey Boehm uh, is credited twice as the writer for this movie, <laughs> which is weird. Um, but it does say here that Jeffrey Boehm, uh, who was an uncredited rewriter for the first film, uh, to lighten it up because it was mm. too dark. Um, he also rewrote uh, Shane Black and Warren Murphy's original script for the second film, uh, completely rewrote it when it was rejected for being too dark and bloody and because they killed Riggs in that film. I'd like to see that one. Um, he also wrote an unused draft for the fourth film. Um which I had read parts of that draft and that was kind of an interesting draft. Um, and it says, Oh geez. Yeah. So he, yeah, he gets two credits on this one. He gets story by, and then he's actually gets a writing credit too. Um, wow. so that's very strange, but I don't see anything on off the top of my, off of the, some of this stuff real quick about it being any other film, but it, it looks like it went through quite a few rewrites. So, so let's uh let's hop and skip right into lethal weapon 4 which starts off with a scene that has nothing to do with anything but is very exciting with a guy in full plate body armor 
and basically, um, this is actually more a comedy bit, kind of cold opening than anything, but he basically gets uh, Murta out there doing a chicken dance in his underwear to get him turned around. He's able to shoot the guy in a gas canister he's got in the back used for a flamethrower. Um, it almost feels like a supervillain from the 90s comic book movies in this intro. It's it's really bizarre and has nothing to do with anything. So I'm going to restart. Lethal Weapon 4 starts with Riggs and Murtaugh on the boat with uh, Leo. And they're fishing. <laughs> and literally... As they're in the middle of a comedy gag about whether or not they should shoot a shark that Leo managed to pull up onto Murtaugh's boat, the plot barrels at them in the form of a shipping ship. <laughs> a shipping it? ship? Anyway. Yeah, it's a, it's a shipping ship, yeah. <laughs> a you ship know ship. Eat me. Um... Where they hear gunfire, and they climb on it and see that it's basically a human smuggling operation. They're bringing Chinese citizens over and charging them uh, exorbitant price to come over so that they come in as indentured service, indentured servants or ostensibly slaves. And what you find out is ultimately the purpose is there's this little brother of one of the kind of foreheads of this major Chinese triad gang and he's trying to counterfeit enough money to buy them out of prison the the foreheads of his triad gang and Riggs and Murtaugh just kind of stumble into it from this human trafficking angle but then just really start once again I don't know how I keep getting the movies where Murtaugh's family is placed in danger by the gang <laughs> but it becomes instantly personal especially as uh, Rene Russo and uh, Murtaugh's daughter, Liara, are both pregnant. So they're threatening the next generation of Riggs and Murtaugh's. <laughs> um, and then they end up finding uh, the meeting place where this goes down. And they kill everybody. So the counterfeiters, the triad, just just everybody. And that's kind of the plot of Lethal Weapon 4. Now, I'm simplifying this a lot, but here's the twist. It's actually a better movie than 3, I think. Um, it's a more cohesive story, for whatever that's worth, because this is not a cohesive story. <laughs> <laughs> but it's more cohesive, right? But it's okay, more okay. cohesive than 3. Um, and here's just the fact of it to me. The action in this movie is the best shot of all four of them. Um, I don't know if some of that has to do with Jet Li's people coming into it or whatever, but the angles, the choice of shots, the lighting, um, and just the action in and of itself, the way it is shot, is definitely superior to three, if not the best of the whole series. Um, maybe that's just because it's so modern, right. but... Um, the fist fights are really good. I mean, Jet Li's definitely a heavy factor. In Absolutely, that. right in his team. So, yeah. Um, the the gun violence is a little more iffy, but yeah, it's just the '90s. But I mentioned this is a swan song thing. 
um, this is kind of the last movie you're going to see again, where they shut down a section of highway and shoot like a real car chase the way they used to. And the car chase in this movie is really exciting. So I'm really focusing on the action because if we want to really go with the butt. <laughs> so I feel like you're miss you're forgetting something, Sean. Do you mm. remember there is a shark on the boat? There there is a, there is shark, a shark on the boat. On this boat. Did you forget that there's a shark on the boat? Because, Sean, there's a shark on the boat. And it's, there was a, shark and it's on the a boat. joke. It's a very expensive animatronic joke that they have mm-hmm. in this movie. And it, and it hurts me in a way that I never thought I'd be hurt by a shark in a boat. However. A shark in the boat. <laughs> so, I'd say maybe... 30% of the gags in this movie land in any way. It's it's not especially funny. But the gags that do land are a lot of Chris Rock's. Um, I'm someone that finds Chris Rock generally funny. So maybe it's just me. So what, what do you think? What do you think of Detective Butters? I Buttworth, Butler. didn't find any of this movie funny. <laughs> I've, really? No, not at all. I'm sorry, but... I, nothing not 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 you if you can't afford a lawyer the shittiest possible one will be afforded to you if you get johnny cocker and i'll kill it's, you it's great that he gets 20 minutes of this film to do his stand-up routine it's great i'm so happy that they decided to do that's that. fair um i'm so happy <laughs> that they had two two extended sequences with chris rock and joe pesci just yelling at each other and I felt like Mel Gibson in that sequence where I literally was just rubbing my temples um, because I was like, why is this in here? This is so, okay. So here's my problem. Yes. I do think that, and we'll get to Jet Li in a moment because we've already done an episode on Jet Li. Our listeners know we love Jet Li. We love Jet Li here. Jet Li is the best part of this movie. Hands down. Oh, Barna, Not even a question. So we'll get to him in a second. This movie is not an action movie. This movie is a comedy with action sequences. And I think for me, that's mm. the biggest change between this one, even even more so than the last one. Well, the last one was pretty even keel, 50-50 action to comedy. I feel like this one is 75% comedy and 25% action. It, it does forget it's an action movie for really, really large swaths of it. For that is large, definitely true. And, and it's playing up the humor. This is, and, and we can go, I've... I was fascinated because I watched this movie last night and I literally tried to will myself to fall asleep during this movie because I hated it so much. I, and what's funny (laughs) is I remember loving this movie when it came out, I have only fond memories of this movie and rewatching it last night. I just, I struggled with this movie. Um, Oh my God. And it's so long, two hours long and there is it is poorly written and poorly structured and i struggled with this now once yeah cuz it's like it it feels like not to no. just on the time point but like the first 90 minutes of it like is like pulling teeth and it is just so slow and then out of nowhere you're looking at it, it's like oh it's the last scene like yeah. 
oh, they, they got all the triad out and everybody's having the big blowout final fight. It just feels like it comes the hell out of nowhere. Yeah, it does. And, and that's because it did. Um, upon my research... Because there's no, there's no ramp up. There's no standard no, ABC they, or, you know, three act structure to this. It just kind of goes. They literally ADR to get them to the last scene. It's literally them. They're like, mm-hmm. okay, here's what, here's the plot. And they literally spend like exposition, like 10 minutes of exposition explaining the counterflip plot, which the heroes don't even uncover. It is told to them by the Asian crime unit. <laughs> and I was like, why, why are they just being told their own plot for their own movie? And then they literally ADR a sequence of them driving to this place being like, guess we got to go stop the buy of these four fathers. And I was like, Oh what? yeah. And, and Leo gets is a private investigator. Yes. Now I don't know what that has to do with anything. And neither does this freaking no, movie. has no clue. They're just giving him more jobs and <laughs> we'll get into this because I want to get into the history of this film because after I watched it, I was like, this movie's a mess, right? Why is this movie a mess? So I started doing a lot of research. Uh, not only did this movie go through a substantial script rewrites and new scripts they could not figure out what they wanted to do. The studio behind this movie, we won't name names. You can look it up for the studio, um, realized in late 1997 that they didn't have a summer tentpole blockbuster in 1998. And so they rushed this film into production. This movie started filming in January. Wow. And it finished filming 33 days before it was released in theaters. That explains the editing. Literally, I was reading that the editor for this movie was editing as the film was being shot. The script wasn't done. They didn't finish writing the final act of this movie, that final action set piece, until they were filming it. Which explains so much of this movie. So much of why this movie's all jokes. Because if you don't have a script, how do you fill time? You know, you fill it with like you, you, you know, hiring Jet Li almost an efficiency thing because they knew his team could put together action sequences quickly. Yep. And I mean, and don't get me wrong, Jet Li's great in this movie, but, and then come to find out, for example, Joe Pesci wasn't even hired. He wasn't going to be in this movie until it was halfway done filming. That explains a lot. And then they were like, we need something else. And so they paid him a lot of money to be in this movie, which is why is most of his scenes feel tacked on, uh, including the best scene in the movie. It's also why his hair is jet black in this movie instead of blonde as this character's always been. Mm, Yeah. So not only that, and then Chris Rock's character was actually two characters put together in one. And originally Uh at the last minute, they changed him to being, Murtaugh's daughter's husband at the very last minute. So originally he was supposed to be a gay police character, which is why all of those jokes are still in there, which don't work. None of those jokes fly for me the whole time. I was like, Oh no, I was like, Oh, gay panic. Oh, more gay panic. Like what's funny is you can't even give it the, it was of its time in this case either, because like, this one's pretty egregious as far as that goes. And originally that was because the character was that way. And it was when Chris Rock signed on to play that character that they changed it to be her husband and that she was pregnant. Oh. So 
this That's... movie was a mess in its in its development and everything like that. So I I I got into this weird wormhole last night of reading the behind the scenes of Lethal Weapon Four because I just couldn't understand why I hated it so much and I wanted to understand. But I can at least name a couple of bits in this movie that did work for me that I actually think are pretty funny. Um, hanging up the news article. Y- yes. Over and over. That is a pretty good bit. Um, like I said, I, I find Chris Rock funny, although obviously mileage may vary because you're not wrong. It, it's just 20 minutes of Chris Rock stand-up routines. That's actually exactly a great, great way to describe his character in this movie. He just goes on rants, Who, right? Also, by like, the way, okay, cool. deeply changes halfway through because he's totally uh, a syncophatic ass-kisser, and then he has that first scene with Joe Pesci, and it's like... From then on, he just kind of turns into another like Lethal Weapon character. It's it's really yeah. weird. All he does is rant about um, things, about cell phones. His whole thing <laughs> with the cell phone, it, with him and Joe Pesci, just like uh, I thought the I thought that cell phone rant was actually pretty funny. Although dates this movie, oh boy, does that date this movie? <laughs> That's fair. Cell phones haven't worked like that in so long. Our younger listeners would not even understand that. No, bit. <laughs> I mean honestly. Yeah. Um, I do think, um, one of the things that does work in this movie weirdly is the relationship between, uh, Lorna and Riggs because it, it's just kind of a cute relationship. I, I like that they still, they live like in a really, really nice home, but still do everything in Riggs' stupid tiny they, ass they've trailer. They've like built a home around I his like trailer is a funny joke. I like that they have yeah. a couple of dogs and that, you know, she she throws treats to the dog and then goes, okay, boy, and throws a treat to Riggs, too. Like, there's there's some really kind of cute, good relationship stuff that I wish had been in the previous goddamn movie. Right. Well, and what's funny is that we even forgot to mention the dog biscuit thing in 3, which that's introduced in 3 that... Because he's trying to, to quit, quit smoking, smoking that's right, yeah. And, that Murtaugh gives him dog biscuits and is like, knock it off. Like just chew on these or whatever, like as a throwaway joke. And then throughout that movie, he ends up eating dog biscuits, which is a funny running joke in that one. Um, and it's funny that that is pretty good. Gag. And then literally there's a scene where he's like, I got to take up something else. I ran out of dog biscuits. It's <laughs> like, okay, that's a good <laughs> joke. Um, there is some good stuff. Yeah, you got to pick up smoking to cut off his good, dog biscuit. Good habit. Stuff. I will give you that. There is some um, good moments. Again, the car chase. I'll, I will, totally stand behind that car chase the car chase is good it's really exciting it's good it feels like it's like thrown in there a little bit where you're like it's like we needed an it's not only thrown in there it's not only thrown in there but it also has one of those like there's a lot of these movies that works a lot better if you've never lived in los angeles (laughs) oh fair (laughs) because let me tell you that car chase ain't happening. <laughs> that car chase is never happening. <laughs> Especially not at noon. Um then you've got even the third one with the uh you know the the subway system like uh, kind of the opposite of my reaction here. No, it, it's that like that was sort of perfect because even residents of LA forget it has a subway system, but it actually does. Yeah. And it has a running subway system to this day. Predator two utilizes that as right. well. Um, so uh, and some of these things are also interesting just as a Angelino where I'm just like, Oh, 
but the fourth one falls apart for exactly the same reason which back on topic focusing yeah. in because like yeah no that car chase is not happening it's um, a good car chase though and i like that he's on the table at one point and he like throws the leg through the window no 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 because that's something you haven't seen before you know i mean watch as many action movies as you can you're not going to see someone jumping onto one of those homes like you know the prefab homes being shipped that's kind of a cool venue for a fist fight. Yeah. And he just drags the dude out of the driver's seat yeah. and the passenger's like, oh shit. <laughs> no, there's there's some good stuff in there. I like the idea. I wish it tied into the Like I said, I stand behind though. all the action um, in this flick. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, um, it's, it's a good sequence though. And that's what this movie does. It has good moments. And most of those moments just feel out of place. The car chase is good. Weirdly enough, the scene in the graveyard right at the end is very good. Where Joe Pesci actually gets I don't act. know what the hell movie that was supposed to be in, but I started to feel emotions, and I'm like, two hours into this piece of shit, and you're doing this to me? And it's Joe Pesci talking about a pet frog, and he gives a this frog. really heartfelt like monologue, and I'm like, this is the best scene in the movie. Why is this here at the end? Why wasn't this no, scene No, no, like- I mean, I'm, I'm like getting misty-eyed even thinking about it. You know, you, get, you guys aren't better friends. You're just different. And it's like, oh my god, that was actually relevant to the whole wife thing. And ev- oh my god, like it was well written, well acted. Even Mel Gibson is like, yeah, shit. The hell no, did this come from? from me? I'm like, this scene, where did it come from? Um, there's good stuff. The final fight with Jet Li between the two of them, um, I think is incredibly well shot. As you said, I think a lot of that has to do with Jet Li's crew. Um, I, I did read in my in my uh, wormhole of research on this movie that Richard Jonard had to keep asking Jet Li to slow his movements down because the camera shutter speed wasn't fast enough. Wouldn't. Yeah, that was, which is an incredible fact. Yeah. I mean, he's a fast dude. Well, was, I guess. Bummer. Right. Oof. Yeah. Um, so there's some good stuff in here. It's just moments. But, um... of, and then for... Uh, and but then again you know they have all this but they have all this goodwill from that fight and then they just can't let it be because then martin gets trapped under the rocks under the water and you know murtaugh wakes him and just like will me to find you will me to oh i hear you Riggs, and he dives in it's like don't 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 be this movie yeah don't be that movie no and it is it is this movie sometimes so that's the thing is that for every moment that I did like, there was three that I found either out of place or didn't work for me. Um, I do think the entire plot is very sweaty. Um, I then like mm-hmm. with the counterfeiting money to free the forefathers uh, in America uh, with things. I don't know. It's it works really hard to get there and the payoff isn't there ever really at all. So I don't know what that is. Um, there's also a lot of imagine if they had imagine if they had cut any one element and just focused the other one cut the human smuggling out altogether focus on the counterfeiting plot like yeah uh, just everything and then the whole sub we somehow we got this far into it without even mentioning the subplot of murtaugh bringing a chinese family into his house which is completely forgotten by the second half like Eddie Coe. Oh, Eddie they... Coe plays the 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 uncle or the head of the household or whatever, and he literally just kind of disappears halfway through, and you're like, okay, cool. After Murtaugh gives him his father's watch yes, and shit, like, like oh my god, it's like, oh, here's a plot, and then it's like, whoops, drop that plot. They do this over and over again. 
uh, Chris Rock being the Murtaugh, not knowing number one, that he's married to his daughter and number two, that he's the father of his daughter's baby. Grandfather. Right. Yeah. Um, is resolved with a throwaway scene. So they get in the laughing well, gas so and it's the... revealed there. And then he like, he like punches Riggs for keeping it a secret from him. And then it's just never mentioned again. Um, yeah. And that, I mean, you know, at some point it almost feels like you're, uh, you're punching down at this poor movie. Cause it's already, hasn't it suffered enough? It, it but... has not suffered enough. It made me suffer. <laughs> just kidding. I have suffered. No, no, no. Um, as a matter of fact, really, I would argue that this was a much better movie if they just cut 20 minutes. Yep. I mean, even simple as yeah. that. It's cut 20 minutes of the crap out, tighten it just a bit, and it becomes a bearable 90s movie. It's a four scripts stitched together, Frankenstein together. And it was baffling to me. And I didn't even mention the most bewildering subplot of all of them. Mm. The most sweaty subplot you will ever see. Where does Murtaugh get his money? Where does he get it, Sean? Is it the shark in the boat? I feel like you're forgetting the shark in the boat. <laughs> like, yeah, the they, out there, they set up that Sean is literally just covering his face with his hands at this point because he now remembers that that well, was a plot in this movie. I I finished watching this movie two hours ago and I completely spaced that. You're entirely right. Yeah, because it's like. They they mention that Riggs is or sorry Rene Russo reads this trashy kind of cop romance, and then it's just later revealed you know oh she's the cop romance writer which I barely remembered from the earlier setup, like he it gives the explanation I had to rewind it because I'm like Wait, what? what yeah <laughs> did I do I have to rewatch this piece of shit because I don't remember that at no. all yeah they they make the initial thing of this 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 you know, trashy romance novel a couple of times throughout it. Rene Russo makes questions about, we don't understand where Murtaugh gets his money. Like they're starting to look into him in internal affairs because we're not sure where he gets his money. And then at the end, Riggs is like, by the way, where do you get your money? And he's like, my wife writes trashy romance novels. And you're like, wow. I don't know why I sounded like Christopher Walken there. Wow. It's, it's wow. A, it's a romance novel. Um, <laughs> but that's a plot in this movie. Why is that plot there? You could have excised that and cut 10 minutes out of this movie and it would have been perfectly okay. Right, because all the, all the setup for Murtaugh's Dirty on the Take where he's just handing out all the money yeah. and everything. Like, why? Ay, ay, ay. I mean, at some point it feels like they just want an excuse to remind us that he has three kids, I guess. Oh, yeah, that's true. And in the same actors play his kids in every movie which is impressive every because movie. the lady that plays his main daughter the one that's pregnant in this uh her name is trish something or other the actress's name this is these are like the only movies she's ever done is the four lethal weapon movies really because <laughs> i looked her up that's i was like funny. what else is she in i don't remember her she has to be a pretty big role and then i was like nope that's literally the four movies she's in um i think it's like six movies total or something like that but four lethal weapon <laughs> movies so broadly speaking um i don't feel like there are any particularly strong 
themes throughout it that you couldn't attribute more to classic action tropes. But I do think it's kind of fascinating to look at this franchise broadly as a franchise in terms of how wildly different these movies are. Because um, something we were talking just before we started recording is that um, it dropped my jaw to realize that the same person directed all four of these. They do not feel even stylistically like the same director. No, and, and what's... Maybe the first two. Right. But three and four are wildly disparate. And even when, and even between the movies, when you start to see a trend, the movies will, whether intentional or not, break that trend. Because, um, mm-hmm. I mean, you could say something about antagonistic cops against each other, uh, particularly with the, like, maybe the police psychologist who's actually in all four films in kind of a throwaway role, mm-hmm. which she does get a good line in the fourth one where he actually goes to ask her a question and she's just at the end of her rope with everything. She's like, I'm not talking to you anymore. All you do is make fun of me. And then like that plays out as a joke. Um, I actually thought that was kind of fun. And the one theme that as I was trying to think about this, like what do these films do? Um, Nothing that all four of them do, which is fascinating Um, because it's so structured at it's like, you know, buddy cop movie concept um outside of perhaps that they stumble into these things or in the case of lethal weapon 4 it runs their boat over and sinks it um and then the shark gets loose did i mention there's a shark in the boat i just wanted to i just want to mention that there's a shark in the boat i did was your favorite part of the movie you know what and i forgot uh in lethal weapon 4 they're captains now don't forget they they were made captains and then it was taken away at the end. So I forgot to mention that There's it's a, a <laughs> it's stupid. Doesn't further the plot at all, and can be completely cut. The entire element of them being captains, but as a strict mini commentary on bureaucracy and the way um, how strong unions are, like police unions. Uh, it is kind of funny that the city will no longer insure the department because Riggs and Murtaugh are so destructive, but um, the union is so good, and they're basically good cops, at least in this action universe. Cause... Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um... We'll go into Mel Gibson's weird racism in the fourth one. <laughs> oh. But, um, so they just promote them off the street, which... I'm like, okay, well, that... Right, right. We don't want to insure you, so we're going to give you a desk job. And then they never spend a moment at the desk. (laughs) It is Mm -hmm. kind of funny. I actually thought the the captain thing was funny. It wasn't something that I was going to bring up um, until I had to bring that up again. Um, But I would say the one thing that when I was trying to think of, like, threads throughout this is that starting with two, there is quite a few threads about racism. It's just most of the films don't actually deal with it. The second one kind of does. And then the third one does a little bit about with the kids with the guns on the street with Murtaugh, but doesn't really embrace it. And then the fourth one has about, you know, uh, Chinese people, but again, doesn't embrace that concept. It's like, it's there, but it's not. Yeah. Basically, yeah, because Murtaugh has a line like, you know, they're basically slaves, and of course I'm trying to help this family because I'd hope someone would have tried to help one of my ancestors, something yeah. like that. And I'm like, 
it's a really good sentiment. Make the movie about that. Why, why isn't the movie about that? Why wasn't Lethal Weapon 3, if you're going to talk As about a of fact, guns, about... We, we kind of... Ta- I, earlier, I'm like, you know, cut out the human smuggling plot and, you know, make it a movie about the just the forefathers and kind of focus in on that but just as easily go the other direction make it a more generic triad gang cut the whole crap about you know the forefathers and just because let me tell you human trafficking is a compelling enough reason by god liam neeson made a whole fucking late life franchise out of it yeah and the opening sequence in four when they're on when the boat hits the ground it gets grounded and joe pesci's being interviewed by the news lady which is kind of a funny thing where Mm -hmm. he drops the f word and he says like can i say that and he starts saying darn okay that's a funny joke i'll give you that Um, that's pretty good joke but when that happens they run into that cop and the cop is like super against immigrants and he mm-hmm. makes comments about it, about like, um, and you know what? I even, I think I even took a note on one of the lines or something like that. Um, oh, the immigration topic now, you know, and, and Danny Glover goes, what happened to like, give me your poor, give me your thing. And he says, America now reads no vacancies. Yeah. It's a good line. And you're like, okay, like that's a, that's a piece of shit cop. Like we don't like that cop. Right. And whatever. And then the movie doesn't mm-hmm. run with that at all. New. No. And you're like, okay, I guess that's and, okay. so. Well, and you get uh, you get Richie, Richie. Uh, I never did learn how to pronounce this guy's last name, but you get the dude from Office Space to do it too. Oh yeah, that was uh, I don't know. I it just feels like either of those movies would have been more interesting. Yeah than the weird Frankenstein's monster was, but, um, anything else kind of for broader themes? Do you think? Uh, not really. I took some notes, uh, you know, the dual threaded plots, stumbling into bigger plots, you know, the action comedy formula that this creates, but less of those are themes and they're more about, um, you know, conventions that it's created. Um, I do one, one weird thing I do like at the end of the fourth one is when they go to take the picture and they're like, you know, we're family, you know, you guys friends, we're family. And then it ends with the song, you know, why can't we be friends? Which I think is kind of a fun juxtaposition, but it made me start to think about like, you know, this, this franchise does have a lot about family, the loss of family or Murtaugh's fear of losing his family. And Riggs did lose his family, you know, and you know, them finding solace in each other because of it. Riggs kind of falling solace in the Murtaugh family. So there's kind of a fun family thread that goes through this movie or through these four movies that I do appreciate. Um, I just, again, and wish Riggs it was stronger. Is, yeah. Uh, the only thing I'll really add on to that. And, you know, uh, certainly we're at the windup. We're almost at two hours here, but, uh, but I will say, throughout all the movies, I love Riggs's relationship with the Murtaugh family. Not with Roger himself, but just how instantly accepting Murtaugh's wife and kids were of Riggs. And it's always implied that, like, he has his own key to the house. Yeah. I mean, it, that's never shown, but I'm saying it's deeply implied. He just kind of walks in, he's making breakfast, everybody just... Yeah, he does his laundry like there, which I think is really funny. Mm-hmm. Like, And then there's the scene where he's like, where's my shirts again? And they're like, oh, it's here. Right? Like, <laughs> like yeah. they have a place for his shirts. 
I like that about this. And I wish the movie, at least the sequels, would have focused a little bit more on that. And as you said, the fourth one gets into it a little bit more, especially with the little kids and, and these potential new generation and things like that. And again, because the movie is just so um, such a mangled script, it doesn't know how to actually utilize that material. So then last thing I think I'd ask you is what do you think reboot or sequel like if if someone points a gun at your head and says in 2022 we need a new lethal weapon movie and you get to choose which path we're going what would you prefer remake or sequel? i'm gonna go with remake uh for the i completely yeah, agree uh for the reasons i kind of spoke about at the beginning that i feel like that this is a franchise of its time period but there's things in this especially the first one there's things in it that you can modernize well. I mean, did you see? Did you watch the TV show? Uh, I did actually. Uh, first season. Uh, anyway. Okay, I never watched it. Is it? Was it as bad as? I mean, obviously, it lasted a little while before. Oh no the no guy no! Went um, crazy. Actually, it was it was good. the The big controversy was obviously the actor who played Riggs was apparently just the world's biggest jackass. And nobody wanted to work with him. But, like, um, Damon Wayans was actually a pretty good Murtaugh. They added kind of an interesting element where he had just had a heart attack. Mm. So he has to wear this uh, watch. And basically, if his adrenaline starts pumping too hard, he, he might have another heart attack. So doing that and then pairing him up with Riggs, that's kind of a cool twist. Yeah. I actually... It's the only thing the show had going for it, but that was kind of a cool tweak on the yeah. formula. And then they made Riggs, basically, um, they brought him back to the super soldier thing, but obviously timing being what it is, they made it the uh, the, the Iraqi freedom instead right, of yeah. Vietnam. But but still, no, and I, so that's why, and I was wondering, because I thought, you know, when I saw that they were making a TV show, I thought to myself, oh, you could, you could, you could update this, and I think it mm -hmm. would work. Um, I mean, you would just have to, it would, some of the elements of the original series, because of its timeliness, uh, or not timeliness, but uh, time frame that it was released in does create some some problems for for rebooting it. But I would say remake. I mean, they're talking about Lethal Weapon Five, and I'm like, I don't know. I mean, you guys made jokes in the third one about getting too old for this. Uh, you made a joke in the first one about getting too old for this. Um, you know, and then in the fourth one, they really lean into that. Um, although I will. Yeah, I can't even I I can't even visualize what a five would look no. like because I mean at this point Chris Rock is too old for this shit. <laughs> I'm too old for this shit. That's what I've come to to conclude. I mean we're we're over twenty years since the last one of these movies came out. I completely agree. I, reboot it. Get you know some get give it make them both young cops. Make it something you can actually franchise and go somewhere yeah. with, but you give one good by the book, one crazy cop. Make it shit. I don't know, Michael B. Jordan and freaking yeah. Chris Pratt or well, something. You know, like. And I think that that would be the key for rebooting this is less about because it has become such a trope. This the whole concept is such a trope at this point that you have to either get a really stylistic director, if you're doing a film version of it, a really stylistic director who has a strong vision of it, or you have to get two people that are very good 
at being, you know, what they need to be for those roles for whatever it is. Like Michael B. Jordan, I actually so um, or something. What you're saying is we need James Wan and Vin Diesel to reboot this franchise. Absolutely need Vin Diesel to reboot this franchise. Um, I am all about that 100% down. Let's get him (laughs) and Ice Cube in the reunion from Triple X3 that we always wanted. Um, there you go. So we'll get that, <laughs> and we'll have it. Yeah, we'll have it directed by James Wan. James Wan is a great action director. Uh, I don't care what people say. Um, for real, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that. So okay, so I think that kind of wraps up themes. What we want from the franchise. Uh, since we did the full franchise, we do get to rank this. So uh, I gotta know what's your ranking for Lethal Weapon. One, two, four, three. That's where I land on it. I do like four more than three, but the difference is fairly nominal. I'm going to be honest. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I would say my ranking is similar to yours. It's one, two, three, four. I got to go in the order. There you I go. I think it's uh, you know, decreasing uh, sales throughout. You it. just love you love his hair too much. Ah, it's feathered. So you know, perfectly. we didn't we didn't spend any real time on it, but honestly, his hair in Lethal Weapon Three was on. I'm just, I'm just sad that you would bring this up knowing that as a bald man myself, I am just so mm-hmm. jealous of his hair uh, that uh, I I just really would really would like it. So um, I do appreciate that he has a ponytail in three for part of it and somebody makes fun of him for the ponytail. <laughs> it's good. I know when he was first in like uniform. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, it was baby officer gonna bite it. Yeah. Yep, gonna bite. <laughs> that's so funny. Shit, I'm gonna have to remember that. Baby officer gonna bite it. Um, that's so good. So that's uh, that's our ranking. So um, hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, you know, we went over the Lethal Weapon movies. Uh, it is our first episode of December. So please, please uh, check out our back catalog. Uh, as I said in the beginning, to check it out. We have plenty of good stuff coming up for you guys later this month. Uh, including uh, obviously a new Good, Bad, Weird, Wild uh, for next week. It's our first thematic one. I won't uh, reveal what it is at this point because I want to, um, you know, I I don't think people should open it until they find it under their uh, tree. So, um, But yeah, our our theme for the month is end of the year, basically. Um, Holidays, end of the year. It's not as not as poppy as our previous themes or some of the themes to come but uh you know it, it's december obviously we're gonna do christmas movies and end of year yeah. list that's how we do a uh, lethal weapon and we do have a holiday themed uh, episode next week and then of course uh we will have our uh, first annual uh nff uh best of the year list we will be looking at essentially two genres uh, you'll see it in weeks three and four Uh, We will be going through horror thrillers, uh, science fiction films, things like that for one uh, list. And then for the other list, we'll be looking at action thrillers and and uh, other films of those ilk. Uh, 2020 is a very strange year for movies. So um, I'm actually very curious to what your list look like. And I know we're recording that really soon. So I'm very, very excited uh to be doing our year of the yeah. endless uh end of the year of the endless let us uh let us see if i can even come up with five action movies that release this year uh let, yeah, let's see if we can come up with five action movies that uh we're not going to get uh completely obliterated for liking uh this year so 
because uh, people seem uh, really intense about yeah. their action movies this year. So I'm <laughs> um, very excited for that. So that'll be at the end of the year. So please, please, uh, if you want to listen to those episodes when they come out, check us out on the social medias. Uh, you can find us over at facebook.com backslash no franchise fatigue. You can find us over at Twitter at an FF pod. You can find us, uh, you can find me over at Twitter at the movie mat. I'm happy to field your questions about, uh, my hatred for uh, lethal weapon four and my love for jet Li and how those, uh, fight against each other in a vicious battle to the very end. And of course, Sean, where can they email you? about your weird love of Joe Pesci's blonde hair. You can email me at nffpod.sean at gmail.com. My name is, as always, a four-letter word. <laughs> and now I must jam a bar of rebar through Matt's spine for any chance to beat him in this final fist fight no. as we close out the episode. Please check out our uh, back catalog. Go uh, listen to us. Subscribe, please, so that you can get our new episodes. And then you guys just wait. We got a lot of good stuff for you December. And we have already planned out like half a year in advance now. So if you need to get your requests in for themes of the month or subject matters or films you guys want to hear about, do it now because we're planning ahead. We uh, we did actually get a specific request for video games. Just saying. Uh, why do you want to do this to me? <laughs> Have yourselves a... Merry Lethal Weapon. A Merry Lethal Weapon, yeah. Uh, Jingle Bell Rock, motherfuckers. (laughs) Alright, thanks guys.